Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. By exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. Pragmatic is supported by you, our listeners. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so via Patreon for early release, high-quality, ad-free episodes. Visit engineer.network slash pragmatic to learn how you can help. Thank you. Uh, I'm your host, John Chigi, and today I'm joined by Radek Pietroszewski. Hey, I'm so glad to be here again. And after two years, which I can't believe it's actually been two years. Yeah, it has been a couple of years and it's great to have you back. Thanks for coming back on the show. I kind of, um, I really wanted to bend your ear about something that I've been reading about recently and I've been getting more excited about. And it's some of one of SpaceX's, I guess, I don't know if you could call it a side project or not, because <laughs> it seems like Elon Musk has a lot of side projects, but but yeah, Starlink. W- would you call it a side project? I would say it started its life as a side project and has been a side project for a couple of years. But I think we're going into the phase that they're really going for it. And it's going to be a very expensive project. So definitely not a side project. No, no, not anymore. It's kind of interesting when I first read about it. And I thought, well, this is going to work and that's not going to work. And I can't believe they're serious. And how many satellites? And um, right, so I've, <laughs> I've done the whole full circle thing here. And uh, um, so I thought it might be interesting to sort of like dig into this. And um, so last time we talked about SpaceX, uh, I mean, a bit of an update since since then, actually. It's probably worth just touching on that since the last time we, we spoke in the last two years. I mean, since then... I'm just trying to remember if the Falcon Heavy had actually made it up and all of the the Falcon 9s had uh, landed again afterwards. Um, what else have they... I think they're down to a turnaround time measured in a, in a matter of a, of a few weeks now, uh, 50-something days. I'm trying to mm-hmm. remember. But yeah, it's, I, um, I, I think two months was just, uh, just yeah. beat the record recently. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, all this stuff is just really driving down the cost of access to space. Oh, the other thing is the um, the Dragon capsule, uh, since we last spoke, is now uh, mm-hmm. uh, the preferred method for getting uh, astronauts up into the space station. Yeah, the, the Crew Dragon, that's many years in the making, many, you know, a few years over time, but, you know, uh, that, that that's a family. And seems like everything worked. It was almost boring. Yeah, well, but that's what you want, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice and nice and boring and serene and no issues. Mm-hmm. But um, but I mean, it's just it, it just keep thinking about how far they've come. It's incredible. And so, you know, having achieved all of this, it's like, well, okay, what else can we unlock? I mean, obviously, their main goal, well, SpaceX keep on saying about their main goal is to go to Mars, mm-hmm. and that's all that's all well and good and lovely. Uh, but then Starlink comes along and it's, um, it's, they're getting very serious about it. So, all right, um, I think it's really important if we're going to talk about like what Starlink is to understand what the state of play is now mm-hmm. in terms of satellite internet. And um, in order to understand that, I've just got to cover off some of the basics. And I know just for the benefit of the listeners, I mean, things like uh, understanding orbits, um, like ground coverage and why we are where we are and why SpaceX's idea is so different from everything else that's out there pretty much. So um, starting off about orbits, I guess, 
And um, I guess the the, the base of an orbit of, of orbits with satellites is the speed of the satellite in orbit has to tra- um, that has to travel needs to be enough to escape the rate at which it's falling. Otherwise, it's going to fall back to Earth, obviously. Um, but if you're going to go too fast, eventually you're going to fly off into space eventually. So the higher you go, <laughs> and that's one of the funny little conundrums, the higher you go, the slower you go, depending upon how you want to think about it, until you reach that magic geostationary orbit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the that's at 35,780, I think it is, kilometers or thereabouts. And when you're traveling up there, you're only, in air quotes only, going at 11,000 kilometers an hour. Which is still quick, but if you're closer to Earth at a lower Earth orbit, then you're going faster than that. Um, the interesting thing about GPS satellites, because everyone knows about, well, I say everyone knows about, that's presumptuous. I think the vast majority of people have heard of GPS. So um, global positioning system satellites, they hang out around about uh, 20,000 kilometers up, and uh, which is not geostationary. Uh, and they're traveling about just under 14,000 kilometers an hour. So they're going faster. Uh, because they're closer, and as you get closer, you go faster. So um, in terms of speed over ground, I suppose, technically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So far, so good? Yeah. I, I think the the good way to think about it is is in terms of the difference between um, speed and angular speed, right? So mm-hmm. to get to a higher orbit, you must be moving faster, but from the perspective of the Earth, it seems like you're moving slower because you're so high up that the angular speed from your your vantage point is slower and slower until you're at geostationary and it feels like the satellite is not moving it's at one point on the sky and it's actually really fast yeah okay no that's a good way of thinking about it and and it's it leads to one of those funny little conundrums too that that took me a while to get my head around years ago when I first heard it would if you're trying to actually increase the orbital speed or um, you, if you have thrusters on a satellite you, and you fire them in the opposite of the direction that you're moving, you'll decrease the altitude. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, if it, whereas if you want to increase its altitude, it's the other way around. Um, and you're right, it's probably easy to think about it from angular. It's an interesting little one to get your head around, but it kind of makes sense when, once you do. It's just, yeah, it's just a bit odd initially. I highly recommend uh, Kerbal space program, Mm -hmm. which is the best way I know to get an intuitive feel of how orbits work. Because orbits are really unintuitive until you play with it and, you know, thrust at different points of the orbit and then they make total sense. Cool. All right. Excellent. Have you got a link for that one? And I can throw that in the show notes. Ah, yeah. I'll find it for you. That's okay. Thank you. All right. A couple of other things just real quick um, just to set up is uh, things like inclinations. So the inclinations is the angle of the orbital plane that it's traveling. Um, So zero degrees would be perfectly around the equator. Thank you very much. I'll add that to the show notes. Um, So as you move away from the equator, then the angle will increase. So if you're going directly over the poles, then that would be 90 degrees. So uh, that's the inclination. So the inclination that the um, that it's that the satellite is traveling in its orbit. That's all inclination is. Uh, nothing too earth shattering. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, I wasn't even trying to be funny, and I'm not even sure that was funny, but never mind. Okay, uh, satellites. One of the problems with satellites um, is that uh, how should I put this? It's not so much the satellite's fault; it's the atmosphere's fault. And I'm grateful that we have an atmosphere. Don't get me wrong; it's fine; it keeps <laughs> us alive. But the problem is that um, even though you're in low Earth orbit, let's say you're in low Earth orbit, um, you're going to get some drag due to the atmosphere. It, it's not a perfect vacuum. It's close, 
but it's not close enough. And uh, there's not just that, there's also other gravitational objects. I mean, the most common ones being the moon and the sun. Uh, I imagine, you know, uh, different bodies in the, you know, around around the place will will eventually tug that poor satellite. And eventually, you're going to have to adjust its position with some with thrusters. That's why satellites have got thrusters on them, just to give it a little bit of a boost from time to time. Otherwise, you get this this thing they call orbital decay. And that's generally not good. Generally, I mean, sometimes you want to get rid of a satellite, I guess you want to deorbit, burn it and bye bye. But um, generally, if you're going to put a multi-million dollar satellite or multi-billion dollar satellite up, it's probably a good idea to keep it up there. Generally, I say generally, <laughs> Starlink <laughs> is a different, interesting take on it. Anyway. Mm. Um, all right. So so there's that. Uh, interesting fun fact. Uh, well, it's a fact, whether it's a fun fact or not. Um, solar flares. So um, our sun goes through an approximate 11-year solar cycle. And you've got lots of sunspots and solar flares and then they sort of peak and then they dip down again. So um, we've been observing this for you know hundreds of years. It's not a new thing. But the thing that's interesting is that um, when the flares are most active, it actually heats up uh, and changes the density of the upper atmosphere uh, to the point at which it creates more drag. And um, funnily enough, during those periods of time, uh, you may have to, if you have to boost a satellite, you may have to boost it up to up to four times in a year just to keep it up during you know high periods of solar activity. Whereas you may only have to do it twice, uh, let's say at solar minima, which is interesting. And uh, the other thing is also, I guess, just as an aside, that uh, uh, when I was in, uh, well, I am I'm still an amateur radio operator, but I haven't actually played a radio for, for on on an amateur radio frequency for quite a while. But obviously, you know, you get some good skip propagation. Uh, based on your solar cycle. So that could be good for ham radio operators, but not so good for satellites. But anyway. Right. All of this is relevant, so stick with me. All right, so ground coverage. Here's here's an interesting thing, um, and it's probably obvious. Maybe it's obvious. Um, as your satellite is in orbit at a certain height, there's only so much of the Earth that it can see at any one time. And at some point, if you try and widen your field of view, you'll reach a point where you can't possibly see any further. And... Uh, essentially that ground track that it follows as the satellite is in orbit, the closer it is, the less it can see. That's the idea anyway. And uh, I think one of the terms they use for it is um, swath width, um, or some people pronounce it swathe, but like lathe. That's ultimately one of the issues is the closer you get um, your satellite close to the surface, then you're going to have less latency. So as I send a signal up to it and I get a signal back again, it's going to have less distance to travel, so it'll take less time. But the flip side of that is you're going to get less coverage because you can't see as much from that height. You could compensate for that by having a much bigger antenna and that bigger antenna can cover a much bigger area. Uh, but the problem with like as much as you can physically see, but then that drives up... Um, but that drives up the cost of the uh, of the uh, antenna and the amplifier. You need to actually get that signal spread over a larger area. So you start eating up your power budget. <sighs> so it's a bit of a problem. Anyway, um, so what I thought might be worth doing is, um, I guess, let's talk a little bit about geostationary satellites for a second because that's kind of like what we've got now mm-hmm. and a little bit about some of the other closer to low Earth orbit ones like Global Star, Iridium, and so on. So geostationary satellites that far out, the latency of those is measured in, you know, half to one second. It's pretty tragic, actually. It's terrible Um, because they're so far out. It's a long way to go and a long way to come back. If only speed of light was faster. Yeah, I know. Hurry up, light. We're dealing with like such distances that the speed of light is just not fast enough. Light speed's too slow. That's right. 
<laughs> it's, oh dear, it's terrible, and it's just it's the fact of physics. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, mm. But the other thing that people don't often think about with geostationary satellites is that you can always tell uh, when you're going up. Like if you're out in the outback or the middle of nowhere, you'll know the difference between. Uh, something which is a low Earth orbit satellite and a geostationary satellite because the size of the dish, um, the the satellite dish for the geostationary satellite is huge. It's usually one to one and a half, maybe even two meters in diameter, and mm-hmm. the um, the low Earth orbit satellite will be much much smaller, like the size of a dinner plate, perhaps. And you know, it's just a function of distance. If you want to get a radio signal that far, that much further, the signal spreads over distance. And because uh, the actual area that the radio signal covers, and I've covered this previous on episodes of Pragmatic, uh, whereby it's the inverse square law. So the, the, for every, if you're one meter out, it's one square meter. If you're two meters out, it's two squared. So it's it's a quarter of the signal strength over the same area. So you have to have a narrower and narrower beam width in order to actually get uh, an, a reliable communication uh, with, the, with that uh, geostationary satellite. And that sucks because that means that you can't actually have like a, a mobile or handheld. It means you have to have a large physical area. And it means that, um, you know, well, that's not really portable. And that's, you know, back in the bad old days when satellite phones were first a thing, you know, those big uh, like briefcase phones, you know, open up the briefcase and you have to line it with the satellite first and then you can make a phone call. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, my goodness. Anyway, so... That's kind of what we got. And in terms of data over those, not too many of the geostationary satellites support any decent amount of uh, of data rates. You can get, I guess, some of them, but they're very, very expensive and the latency is horrific. So if you're trying to do real-time anything, you can just forget it. Um, it's just not, you know, and when it, you know whatever they get the reporters on um, and I've got a reporter in a different country and they're coming in live via satellite and the, the, um, the host of the show on one side says, What's it like over there in other half of the world? And then you sit and watch this person with a smile and a nod for about two or three seconds like they can actually hear them and they haven't heard them yet because <laughs> the signal hasn't got to them yet. And then mm-hmm. you've got to wait another few seconds for them to come back to you and say, yeah, it's really great over here. <sighs> anyway, latency. All right, so that's geostationary. Um, one of the things about geostationary satellites is that because they are so far out and they need more power, uh, they have to be bigger, which makes them bigger and heavier getting a satellite to a geostationary orbit is also like a lot more expensive. So I think, yeah, sorry, um, with the Falcon 9s and the Falcon Heavies, I'm just trying to remember which one of those can get you to geostationary or not if a Falcon 9 on its own. Sure it can. Most satellites, most like, you know, TV satellites, a Falcon 9 can get. um, But there are some that are really heavy and you need something like Falcon Heavy to get them. Um, but actually, often the the constraint is volume. So a selling feature of Ariane Five rocket is that it has such a big uh, payload fairing that you can get two geostationary um, satellites in one launch. They have to be pretty lightweight for geostationary satellites, but you could just couldn't fit them on a Falcon. Yeah, it's sort of uh, it's it's interesting when you look at uh, some of the complexities of that, and we'll get to the whole um, Starlink and how that's different um, in a minute. But uh, yeah, I mean, one of the advantages of the uh, miniaturization and um, the like, the chip fab sizes and the amount of power that we've got available to us, like processing power in terms of compute power, um, we are able to get away with smaller and smaller satellites. But when it comes to raw power and large large battery packs and large solar panels. 
sometimes you just can't avoid it. And if you need that power in a geostationary satellite, which is the one that's going to need it the most, um, you, just, you don't have a choice. You just need to make a big, heavy satellite and it's very expensive to get up there. Yeah, generally, if you're if you're going to put up a just a, you know, regular TV satellite um, as cheaply as possible, like you're not going to get it below 200, 300 million. And it only goes up from there if you want anything custom at all. Exactly. So let's talk about... Um, Probably the two largest ones that I'm uh, that I well that I'm aware of. Obviously, there's others, but um, I'll briefly touch on OneWeb. Um, mm-hmm. It kind of started. They launched a few satellites, then they went bankrupt a few months back. Um, so that was that. Um, I don't know what they're going to do with the satellites that got up there. They're certainly not doing a heck of a lot. Uh, they've actually they've actually been. I don't want to say acquired because they're they're going through the bankruptcy court or or whatever the details are. But mm-hmm. the British government and a big com- telecommunications company from India wants to buy up the assets, and who knows what they want to do with it. Yeah, okay. It makes me think a little bit about what happened to Iridium, but um, yeah. So yeah, so we'll wait and see what happens with OneWeb. But I don't want to spend too much time talking about it. But let's just say that at the moment it's not doing a heck of a lot. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, it was. Uh, interesting uh idea whether or not it would have been successful or not in it with its current trajectory we'll we will see but let's see what happens but um so i just want to talk about global star first and then iridium and sort of compare and contrast the differences and then what makes them a different from starlink so let's talk about global star first so global star has a reliance on lots of ground stations uh and the idea is that um, when you put the satellite up into the into the uh, into orbit, if you've got a mobile device or a spot device um, to connect to that satellite, you connect to the satellite. The satellite then has to connect down to a ground station. Otherwise, you have no connection. Uh, so the satellites don't actually talk to each other in that network. So to make it work, you need ground stations, and you need to have a ground station effectively in on the continent that you're you're operating from. Otherwise, it's a non-starter. And there's 40 ground stations for Global Star around the world. Seven, there's seven in North America. And um, in terms of where they're at, um, the first generation satellites um, were launched, and they have a, um, I think it's yeah, 1400 kilometers, and they had a 60 millisecond latency um, as a 52 degree inclination. And originally, they launched um, 77, I think it was originally, I think. Uh, and they're down to about 66 all up. But anyway, second generation uses only 24 satellites. But the reason that I wanted to mention that is that they were very much um, more focused on the public switch telephone, telephone network when they were on data. Although you could do data on them, it wasn't that impressive. Uh, and one of the big problems with Global Star was that, well, is with Global Star, is that it has a high latency, but it's not just that, it's, and that's because it's further out, but it's also because it relies on that ground station connection. There is no uh, inter-satellite uh, hopscotch, I guess, for the want of a better word. As the signal goes up, it hops between the satellites to get down to the nearest ground station to get back to, to where it needs to go. And that's where Iridium was different. And Iridium originally was launched in like November of 1998, uh, but the problem with that was that they went bankrupt, I think it was, shortly thereafter. Um, <laughs> and then they got rescued. Mm-hmm. And um, all the original satellites were up there for, I think, almost 20 years. 
and um, they've now just only just recently been replaced. So they've done a deorbit, a burn up of all of their original satellites, and they've been fully replaced by Iridium Next. And the thing that I find awesome about that is that all the Iridium Next satellites were launched by hmm, what kind of rocket? Sorry, spoiler, it was a Falcon Nine. So. Uh, is I just I don't know why I find that funny. Is it's like SpaceX are going to do Starlink, and yet the Iridium, which mm-hmm. is a direct competitor, was launched on a SpaceX rocket. <laughs> I mean, it's just I don't know why that's funny, but anyway. So all, they were all launched between 2017 and 2019 uh, on a whole bunch of Falcon Nines. There are 66 satellites in use. Nine are in orbit as active backups, so that means that they launched 75 and they got six sitting down uh, on Earth as spares. Uh, they're designed for 15 year lifespan. Now, they're only 780 kilometers up, which is 485 miles, uh, in a 100-minute uh, Earth orbit. So because they're closer, uh, they they have the service they call it's Iridium Certus, C-E-R-T-U-S. I think that's how you pronounce it. Anyway, uh, 40 to 50 millisecond latency, so better. And data rates up to 700 kilobits per second now, and they reckon they're working on refining that and pushing that to 1.2 megabits per second uh, soon. Now, as I said before, one of the other great things about Iridium is that uh, it does do inter-satellite comms. So uh, if you're in a, a location, you can go up to satellite A. If you can't get to where you need to go, then it'll go across to satellite B and maybe to satellite C before it goes back down to a ground station. And they just added a whole bunch of extra ground stations as well. They don't need anywhere near as many as Global Star. And, um, you know, so I think they put the latest one in the Southern Hemisphere. Actually, I think, is it the only one in the Southern Hemisphere? Anyway, it's in uh, uh, Punta Arenas in Chile. Uh, I'm assuming it's nice and high up there. And um, the one before that they finished off was the uh, Chandler Ground Station in Arizona. There's a few more than that, but um, they don't need anywhere near as many. But still, we're not talking about a lot of satellites. And they're still technically low Earth orbit, but um, not not quite as... um, low low as starlink's going to be anything else to add on iridium i'm just going to plug in if we're discussing iridium Mm. uh, the book eccentric orbits the iridium story by john bloom is simply amazing the story behind iridium's success and then demise and then kind of success again is wow like it's it's a it's a great book Uh, i just wanted to, to plug this it's a great story yeah yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think that Iridium has uh, is, is amazing technology, uh, but I also think that the uh, the Iridium Next design sort of pushed the envelope forward with more of a focus on uh, internet. However, um, I think that Starlink's vision or SpaceX's vision for, for Starlink is, um, is sort of like next level. It, it's kind of the Wayne Gretzky um, quote of skating to where the puck's going to be rather than where it is now. So Iridium feels more like where it is now, which is now already like not where it needs to be, <laughs> mm-hmm. whereas Starlink is where it needs to be, I think. So, all right. Um, so let's uh, circle back just quickly before we get into Starlink and talk about some more of the upsides, downsides, trade-offs before we can understand Starlink as to why it is the way it is. The closer a satellite is to the service, the lower the latency, uh, but the less coverage you get. So therefore, if you want to have the same amount of coverage as something like Iridium or like a geostationary satellite, you have no option but to add more satellites. Um, you can't just keep making the antenna bigger because if you do that, then you're going to need more power. If you need more power, then you're going to need a larger satellite. And if you need a larger satellite, then you're going to need to have, um, it's going to cost you a lot more money to to launch it. And it's probably, you know, anyway, it makes sense to have lots of smaller satellites lower to the ground because it also means that uh, it's no different to cell coverage. So, uh, So inside the cities, we've got metro cells, 
microcells, um, picocells, femtocells. And as we get smaller and smaller and smaller, they're lower and lower power. But because you have lots of them, you can increase the density of, of, of connections on a mobile phone. It's no different with satellites. It's exactly the same idea. So you can have a lot more people connected in a, a square kilometer, for example, if you've got two or three satellites for them to hand off their data connections to than if you've only got the one. So it's pretty pretty straightforward. So anyway, and anyway, so that also therefore means that you can be more power efficient because you need less power, which means you can get away with smaller antennas on the ground, which is a massive plus as well. So you don't have to have a massive dish that you have to point at a, at a geostationary satellite uh, or iridium. You don't have to have this long sort of like, I don't know, what is it, about, um, about 20, 15, 10, 15, 20 centimeter long, funky looking long antenna sticking out the top of your phone, which is not, to be fair, it's not the end of the world, but I think people have gotten used to the fact that phones don't have long antennas. And besides, if we have a long thing, long antenna protruding from a phone, they tended to break. I remember when I worked at Dick Smith Electronics, um, we, we sold a fair replacement of the, um, the Motorola StarTac um, uh, little antennas that you would pull out because they would just regularly break. <laughs> so anyway, um, showing my age. Anyway, all right. So uh, anyway, it's fine. Do you, hey, because do you remember kids when they had you know, antennas sticking off the end of your mobile phone? I'm like, no, no one remembers that, Dad. Okay, fine. Right. Um, okay, so here's the downsides, because it's not all upsides for having lots of satellites. First, The first downside is that more satellites are harder to coordinate the handoffs between them, because playing hopscotch between satellites is a pain in the neck. And it's 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 computationally intensive. It's quite it's quite complicated to do the switching. Um, so that's that's definitely a downside. Um, the more ha- hops you have between satellites also means that you're going to probably need more ground stations to mitigate your latency. Otherwise, you're going to have random variable latency through the network, which you may well have anyway to an extent. So yeah, for example, if you've got a connection between point A and point B, and you don't know if you're going to get there through one or two satellites or three or four, depending on where they are in their relative orbits and how many times you've got to hop between them before you come back down to Earth again, it's kind of, that, that could be a bit of a problem. So managing that means, you know, you can't get away with as few ground stations. You need to have more of them. So there's that. And then um, I guess I have to talk about Doppler effect um, because it kind of drives some of the decisions and some of the stuff that's been talking about. So um, I've, I've done a lot of talking, but I, I guess I just, what, what do you, what's your take on just not necessarily talking about Starlink yet, but talking mm-hmm. about um, using light uh, or you know laser for um, essentially using intersatellite comms, not using radio, but using light, right? Rather like fiber optics without the fiber. Have you had much of a? Have you had? How much do you know about that sort of stuff? I'm just curious. Well, you get to have a much higher throughput, mm-hmm. but it's pretty complicated to do. Like it's not easy at all. No. Especially with as many satellites as Starlink is going to have. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that the thing that's interesting is that um, radio has its place and uh, optics has its place. And typically, we've only really done optics um, at any kind of scale reliably using fiber optics. And mm-hmm. once it's trapped in a fiber, uh, you have complete control over it. There's no interference. There's no, there's no problems. Well, I say there's no problems. I mean, there's always problems, but... You know, whereas if you're going through open space, that's a completely different thing because you've got all sorts of problems with um, diffraction in the atmosphere and you aren't going to get a reliable connection. Alignment needs to be extremely precise. So mm-hmm. these are problems uh, that are very difficult to overcome at ground level. 
even going up and down through the atmosphere, although there have been all sorts of different um, experiments that have beamed data even to satellites um, in deep space using lasers. But um, there's lots of error correction because there's lots of scattering and it's not something we generally do because it's generally pretty unreliable. But the funny thing is when you're up there in space, um, a lot of those problems don't exist. So you don't have an atmosphere that's going to scatter your laser. You don't have... Um, you know, as much interference. And if you pick frequencies that are outside of the sun's ray, the sun's uh, spectrum, then you're not going to get interference from the sun either. So Mm -hmm. it actually sounds like if you can solve the alignment problem, that suddenly this could be really useful. So one of the things that Starlink is going on saying that they're going to use for inter-satellite comms is not radio necessarily. It's going to be um, optical. So... When we uh, and and the other other benefits you get out of that is you get away from the Doppler effect uh, problem. Mm-hmm. So um, Doppler effect on radio. Um, any thoughts on that before I dive into so go ridiculously technical? Just curious about Doppler effect. Yeah, as it applies to satellite radio for satellites and and radio signals. Not really. No. Okay. Well, I'm I'm sorry. I'll just bear with me for a few more minutes. I just gotta. Mm-hmm. When I first got into satellite radio, because I, I really didn't get into satellite. And I say satellite radio, I don't mean serious XM. I mean, you know, like amateur radio on satellites <laughs> is, is that mm-hmm. what you realize is that um, when you've got your VCO and you're trying to tune the frequency as the satellite's approaching, you have to actually tweak the frequency up a few kilohertz. Mm-hmm. And as it's going away from you, you have to tune it back again. Otherwise, you'll lose a signal. And so this whole thing of Doppler effect as affects uh, radio signals is is a thing. So, I mean, I think most people understand the idea of Doppler effect as it applies to a sound. So as a, an ambulance is coming towards you, the siren's going off, it'll sound like a higher frequency. As it's in line with you, it'll sound like it's at exactly the right frequency. And as it's going away from you, it'll sound like it's at a lower frequency. And it's just a matter of the sound, the source of the signal is moving and therefore the faster it moves and if you're relative to you, you will see a corresponding change to the wavelength and hence um, vehicles F lambda, hence you change the wavelength, you change the frequency. And this is a real problem. Um, the other thing that people don't think about is they don't think about broadband. The problem with broadband is that uh, if you've got a really wide channel, let's say it's a 100 megahertz channel, and you're operating in three gigahertz microwaves. That's a pretty wide channel. Uh, three gigahertz is pretty low frequency, but just some rough numbers. Then that difference between the high end and the low end in terms of um, in terms of that wavelength, you'll be looking at 100 millimeters at one end, and you'll be looking at um, 0.09966777 millimeters at the other end of that. So as your orbital velocity is going, so Starlink's going to be going at 27,000 kilometers an hour at its at its height. So if you actually do the numbers and all that, I'm not going to go into all the detail, although I've got it in the show notes for people that are interested, is that um, you're looking at an error of, uh, well, and this is without the Doppler effect, your error from one end to the other of the spectrum is 0.000099 millimeters in wavelength. But if you go to high frequencies like light, so once you've gone from 3 gigahertz to 300 terahertz, which is essentially frequency for light, um, it's 100,000 times less of an impact. And so essentially you've taken something which is computationally problematic because you've actually got a, a varying frequency that's going to cause a distortion of your data from the low end to the high end of your broadband spectrum you're trying to use, and you've essentially made it negligible. So optics have got a lot going for them because, you know, you don't have to worry about that so much. So anyway, all the numbers are in the notes if you really want to know. 
Um, right. So the other thing I thought about is, well, what about, because um, people are saying, well, optics is faster than electro, like, like electrical signals. And it is and it isn't. Um, the speed of light is fast, sure, but um, the speed of an electron is effectively the speed of light. I mean, it's 99.9999992% the speed of light, whatever. It's, it's effectively the speed of light, pretty much. And the only reason that it's not the speed of light is because electron has mass. So the problem is the conversion. So you convert from light to an electron or electron back to light again. Um, that conversion speed is really no different um, than radio. So if you're going to go to electromagnetic and magnetic wave to uh, electrons or back again. So if you're in a, um, a switch and that switch has got fiber optic transceiver or it's got a radio front end on it, you're not going to get any significant difference in the conversion between the two of them. So light's still better because you're not affected by Doppler. You can also do wavelength division multiplexing into a single signal to get more data over the same uh, physical space. When you're on Earth, the biggest downside is you can't use light generally because of interference. So you put fiber optic cable in and everyone says, well, that's great, isn't it? But the problem is that fiber optic cable slows down light, which sucks. Mm-hmm. So yeah, because the refractive index of, of um, single mode fiber rough figure that we use about 1.5 1.467 if you're really interested uh, which is about a 30% reduction of the speed of light and that really kind of sucks so um, whilst everyone thinks oh fiber optics super fast it's actually not it's not as fast as if you were sending a radio signal it's not as fast as if you were using optics in free space so when they say high speed in a vacuum that's what they mean it's it's simply the fact that you don't have to slow it down by forcing it through a fiber um other benefits of radio, it's not affected by solid walls, mostly, unless they're made out of steel. You know what I mean? As long as you're not in a Faraday cage. Okay, so there's that. Um, anyway, so, all right, that's all the pluses and minuses and so on and so forth. And it's really, optical is really only useful for inter-satellite links or ISLs because obviously, you know, to and from the surface, got to go through the atmosphere. All right, so finally, it's time to talk about Starlink. Yay. Nice. Okay. <laughs> Like if I did, otherwise, if people don't like have an idea of the, the the pros and cons, then why Starlink's doing what it's doing won't make sense. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my my problem. You know, it's like people say, "Oh, that's a lot of satellites. That's really bad, and that kind of sucks." Like, yeah, well, actually, there's a reason. Okay, so first of all, Starlink originally um, the first lot of satellites. So there's a whole bunch of different generations. So first one's 550 kilometer orbit. Nine, that's 340 miles. It's a 95 minute Earth orbit. I don't know why people like talking in minute Earth orbits. I kind of, I guess it's easy to visualize, like the satellite's going to go past every ninety-five minutes. I kind of like that idea, but mm-hmm. it's not very, it's not very scientific. It's like ninety-five point four something or whatever. So round it up, round it down, it's close enough. But I, I think that's due to the fact that a large chunk of people interested in satellites are interested in watching satellites, and then you do care what's what the time of the orbit is if you want to, you know, see another pass. Mm. Oh, it's a very human measurement. You know, it's kind of like, uh, that, yeah, exactly. It's a very, but it's very human because if you think about it, like 95 to 96 minute Earth orbit, you'd think, oh yeah, that's not that different. It's actually really different. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's like quite a lot of kilometers between a 95 and a 96 minute Earth orbit. But um, anyway, um, so yeah, 27,300 kilometer an hour orbital velocity. And each Starlink satellite is going to weigh about 500 pounds, which is 227 kilograms, which for a satellite is actually really light, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. For, for what it does, for what it contains, for the, the throughput it, it can provide, 
200 kilograms is nothing. Yeah. But actually, even more impressive than that is the volume. Mm. The um, Starlink satellites are really small. They're like really densely packed, but they they are an unusual shape. Like that's just not how satellites look like. They're flat packs and it's really weird. And they they must have done a lot of engineering to to get that done, but they are so light that the mm, the constraining factor once again became not the mass but volume in terms of how much you can put on a satellite mm-hmm. and with how many satellites you have to you know have with Starlink, you want to put as many satellites as possible every launch. So I think if I remember correctly, they are able to pack 60, I think, or something like yep. that, into a single Falcon 9. Yeah. Yeah. So That's amazing. So that's that's the size. So the fairing is the size of like a like a city bus, right? And normally you just have one satellite there, one big satellite mm-hmm. for geostationary orbit, and they pack 60 satellites. Like that's simply unheard of. There have been launches space launches in the past that would deploy a hundred satellites on one launch but not 200 kilogram satellites but mostly cubesats like three kilogram or five kilogram just tiny tiny super simple super cheap comparatively speaking of course satellites not like you know really powerful communication satellites 60 yeah i know wow it's amazing it is it's absolutely amazing and uh, one of the things that's um, that's interesting about it is just because they're small doesn't mean that they can't um, handle large throughput. Mm-hmm. So this is the that's the other thing, right? Obviously. So um, during a beta test, uh, they SpaceX did a um, a test with the uh, U.S. Air Force, I think it was, and it was a C one twenty one. 5180, I forget the designation of the plane, whatever it was anyway. Um, one of the, the Air Force's large planes. And um, the test, they called it Global Lightning uh, because they just like giving names like that to their stuff because it's you know, Elon Musk. Anyway, and um, the download speeds that they got in their beta test were 610 megabits per second, which is far beyond anything that's up there. Uh, it's it's just ridiculously so far beyond what's up there. Mm-hmm. And recently they're talking about one gigabit per second. Now, I can believe one gigabit per second if you've got very few people on the satellite um, that you're talking to. Uh, and I, I, that may well be possible. It's like a raw data rate perhaps. But um, yeah, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll see how that goes. But still, you know, it's good to shoot for the moon and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that one goes. Um the other thing that uh, Ellen's been talking about is they've been touting a latency of 15 milliseconds to 25 milliseconds. And recently, Ellen tweeted saying uh, 20 milliseconds was really their goal. And if you think about that, that's insane. Um, I did the rough calcs based on the height and the switching and what you can expect for switching delays. And at that altitude, in theory, that should be possible if you only have like if there's no hop. You know, if you go up to the satellite and then you go straight back down again, um, that should be achievable. But it's still kind of a crazy thing, crazy kind of latency for a satellite. Do expect it to be definitely more than 20 milliseconds, at least for many years to come. Um, yep. if, if you watch SpaceX or like anything Elon Musk does, you'll see that you know he promises a lot of things. Half of them never come to exist. 
and the other half does come to exist much later than the schedule he says it will. Mm-hmm. Um, m- not nearly as good as what he promised and still pretty mind-blowing that that it's it's even possible. So I, I don't think 20 milliseconds is, is going to happen soon, but whatever it is, I think it's still going to be just wow that, that you can have like proper data internet access from a 200 kilogram satellite switching from one to the other with you know whatever latency it is it will be completely usable mm-hmm. yeah well that's it i mean it, it's the thing to remember is that um yeah even if they do achieve 20 milliseconds which is still impressive mm-hmm. um that's still about twice what you would get out of decent broadband on earth like my the latency for my connection here is like seven or eight milliseconds depending on which server i'm trying to hit and it's like that's only a problem for certain sorry if there are certain applications like uh, like video video conferencing or like some low latency gaming uh, that that needs that sort of low latency, mm-hmm. most applications on the internet like looking at a web page or, or, or streaming like radio or music or whatever else it, that doesn't need to have twenty milliseconds of latency. Well, honestly, even for for video conferencing, it will be negligible. Yeah, true. Um, it will matter if you. If you try to um, play a first-person shooter or um, uh, make uh, algorithmic, um, uh, you know, uh, stock trades <laughs> over Starlink, otherwise it will be just fine. Yeah, I, I do think that it's it's good to have goals and it's good to shoot for the moon, as I said before. And I think that it's it, it that's great, but it then is certainly streets ahead of of um, of what Iridium Next is capable of. But obviously. We're still in the beta testing stage, so we'll wait and see. Jury's out. Um, now, to, just in case you thought Elon Musk wasn't making grandiose enough claims, he's then saying that, oh, by the way, you know, we're just working on the Starlink thing. Well, the generation two of Starlink, yeah, we're going to do like, we reckon we can crack eight milliseconds. Now, I ran the numbers on this, and I think that it's one of those things that is a theoretical possibility only. And I think that the reality is going to be once you get a lot of people on there, you're never going to get that as a sustained, consistent um, result. And I think a lot of that will be things like um, as your phased array is tracking the satellite, which we'll talk about in a minute, mm-hmm. um, the satellite's going to go and pass overhead and it's going to go uh, as it's approaching, it's further away from you from the ground. Therefore, you're not going to get eight milliseconds. Once it's directly overhead at its closest point to you, you might experience eight millisecond latency for a short period of time. And then it'll be late, it'll be longer than that again. So, it, it all depends on how you want to slice it. And again, I really don't know how many people are going to be that upset if you don't get eight milliseconds. And that's even if that's achievable. So anyway, interesting, but you know, I suppose typical Elon. Okay, right. Uh, a couple of things about them. Um, they're using hall thrusters. All right. Hall thrusters. I mean, this, that, yeah, that's the sound of crickets. Anyway, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, but the thing is when I was reading about this, I'm like, don't they normally use Xenon um, for their thrusters and they're using, they're using uh, Krypton gas? And I'm like, okay. Yep, yep. See, th- this is one of those SpaceX things. So yeah. why is Xenon used? It's because it's, it's better. It's just a better mm-hmm. gas for a hull thruster propellant. Yeah. Um, Krypton, uh, am I getting this right? Krypton? Yeah. Krypton is not as good, but what it is, is far cheaper. And... You know, when you're investing three hundred million dollars or half a billion in a TV satellite to put up there, 
for 15, 20, 25 years, you don't care about the, the, the price difference between Krypton and Xenon. No, you just pay for Xenon, yeah. Yeah, uh, but I, I don't think you mentioned this, this, this number, but when you want to have 1,500 satellites and then more in the future, and you're doing everything you can to be able to, to do that financially, and you're making them as small, as cheap, as lightweight as possible, you're putting them on like reused, five-time reused rockets, mm-hmm. um, then yeah, suddenly it's like, oh, actually, we don't need the extra performance of Xenon. It's fine. Let's just use Krypton. It's cheaper. Why, why do you want yeah. to use Xenon? Yeah, um, but it, it, and it, you're exactly right. It, it speaks to the design methodology that they're approaching Starlink with, which is completely different to pretty much every one that I'm aware of. Because um, mm-hmm. it's like, well, if we're going to make lots and lots of these and they're going to be kind of expendable-ish. Yep. So I mentioned that Iridium's lifespan um, satellites is expected to be 15 years. And the last lot of Iridium, Iridium Next, and the Iridium satellites uh, originally lasted 20 years. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, except for one, which I'll talk about at the end. Um, but never mind. The point is that uh, it was a bit of a whoopsie over um, over the <laughs> Soviet Union. But anyway, never mind that. Um, it's fine. Oh, Siberia, I should say. Okay. So never mind that. Point is... Um, some of the other cool features of the Starlink satellites, I say cool in air quotes, is that they're touting that they'll have optical sensors to scan for local space debris and attempt to automatically avoid it. I'm actually not sure if how much of that is marketing blurb and how much of that is actually possible. I know that they're going to use the, um, I think it's NASA's uh, tracking database for all the space junk mm-hmm. and they're going to try and programmatically avoid it. That I would believe. Um, but anyway, never mind that. Um, so as much as we talked about laser links between the satellites for inter-satellite communications, um, they're not up and running yet, and but they're planned for the future. So I suspect they're going to have uh, a lot of bugs to iron out with that. But if they can make it work, that's uh, that's really really good if they can. Just just what you said that they'll have bugs to iron out. This again speaks to the complete one eighty degree change in design and and just product engineering mm-hmm. um you know difference between starlink and everything else like no one thinks of of um satellites a, a satellite communication network as something that that you gradually iterate over like a software project you just don't get to do that it's too expensive and you don't have a large enough sample mm-hmm. To do that, maybe you have the first satellite or a first small batch of satellites, and then you plan for um, block two in you know um, military contracting uh, parallels or version two, as what you know software developers would would say, with a mm-hmm. bunch of imp- improvements, and you know they they often fall into the second sy- system syndrome, but that's another thing. But but here, like they're they're. They're iterating, and every couple of launches, so every couple of months, there's a change to Starlink, and they're trying something new, and they're improving it, and they're tweaking it. And mm-hmm. sometimes those satellites they 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 fail, and it's fine because it's like three out of sixty on a launch. Yeah, plenty more where they came from. You're absolutely right, and it's and the way they're approaching this is very much right. We know it's not going to be. We're not going to have inner satellite links up, up and running first, but that's okay. We're going to get the rest of it working and we'll get the bugs ironed out of that. And then we'll just launch some more. And then we'll just you know launch some more. And every time we launch some more, um, we'll add improvements and refinements and we'll get better and better as opposed to let's engineer the whole thing on the ground and then launch it up there because it's so expensive. 
And 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 I'll, at the very end, I just want to talk about why why Starlink can get away with that. So, all right. Um, the funny thing about Starlink design, though, is that it's changed multiple times since it was first submitted to the FCC for approval. Now, I thought about, oh, I should go through all the different design phases. And I'm like, you know what? It's iterating and changing so much that I don't think it's worth doing that. So let's just talk about as of right now today. And let's just put your hand up and say, I admit that in six months time, it's probably going to be different again because, you know, they keep iterating this thing. So this will be current as the time of publication and that'll be that. And just, you know, refer to the latest submission for the Starlink design whenever you're listening to this, if you want to get the current state. But anyway, as of April this year, the latest plan they submitted is the KU and KA band satellites. They are in orbits of about 540 to 570 kilometers. That's 500, uh, sorry, 340 miles to 350 miles at inclinations of 53.2 degrees, 70 degrees and 97.6 degrees. There's going to be 4,408 Starlink satellites in total. And then they've also said that they're going to have 7,500 V-band satellites in orbit at uh, 345 kilometers, which is 214 uh, miles. So just about the bands, just real quick, that's just radio terminology. So a V-band simply means 40 gigahertz to 75 gigahertz. KU band is 12 to 18 gigahertz. KA band is 26.5 to 40 gigahertz. It's just the different radio frequency bands. And they have different uses depending upon what you're trying to achieve. Some uh, have more or less interference from the atmosphere. Uh, like V-band, I think, is one of those ones they'd like to use for inter-satellite communication. So don't just think they're going to go straight to laser. They're not going to. But um, anyway, so and as of June this year, so only a month ago, SpaceX then said in the US, hey, we're going to apply for use of the E-band uh, for their second generation constellation of up to 30,000 satellites. So it's like, okay, this is a lot of satellites, like a ridiculous number of satellites. No one's ever done anything quite like this before because their goal is to provide complete global internet coverage. And the whole design ethos is all designed around one uh, one idea of it's cheap to get it up there and I don't care how long it lasts or not that much because they're saying each satellite is only going to have five to seven years of usable life. That's it for a satellite. Some of those geostationary satellites have been up there for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, Iridium, like I said, 15-year design life. They're talking about five to seven years. And with that many satellites, it doesn't matter if one or two of them have problems. You've got plenty more up there. In fact, they're even designing them so that they'll burn up nice and neatly. So one of the things about the revision, the first release revisions they've been, they've been touting is 100% of, and this is their blurb, all components of this design will quickly burn in Earth's atmosphere at the end of each satellite's life cycle, end quote. So they're designing them to burn up nicely, like completely, because that's the whole idea. Launch them up, um, they're good for a while, and then burn them up, they're done, put the next lot up again. So that's a bit different. I, I want to impress upon the listeners just how ridiculous the 30,000 number is or even the smaller numbers the total number of satellites of you know objects in orbit in low earth orbit mostly is about 5,000 okay over the last what is it 50 60 years mm-hmm. we've yeah. put up something like 5,000 objects into space and right now Okay, not even going to the, the crazy bright future plans of, of SpaceX. Just right now, before Starlink is even operational, they've already put up 540. That, that's already like 10% of everything. 
those are big numbers. It's crazy. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it is. It, they're insane. Absolutely insane numbers. And I, and it's um, I just want to quickly wrap up on the whole um other pieces of this puzzle, and then we'll we'll circle back and talk about the how they can do it. Um, so apply in the US, they've applied for um. 32 ground stations and and as of a few weeks ago they've got five of them approved in five states so um you still need lots of ground stations more than the other technologies because there's you know you know they're, they're trying to keep their latencies low um and the the user terminal at the the ground on the ground they they keep talking about it'll be about the size of a, a pizza box um you can get pizza boxes of different sizes but you know <laughs> again elon musk whatever mm-hmm. um and it'll be a phased array antenna which is you know so in other words, you light flat and uh, the software will phase the antennas to essentially virtually direct it. Same kind of technology behind um, phase antenna arrays for MIMO. Um, mm-hmm. Not new, been around a while. It's not the most efficient kind of antenna, but it makes up for the fact that it's overspecced for its size. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is that it'll work fine, but it needs to be mounted anywhere. So long as you can see the sky, kind of obviously, it's not going to work indoors. So that's just not going to work, okay? Mm. Um, I don't know how well it's going to work in a window uh, or on a window. Like it might, but I don't think that would be very reliable. No. You'd probably be better on the back deck or on a roof. The more sky you can see unobstructed, the better. But, you know. Right. We're, we're talking about satellite communication. Even with orbits as low as 550 kilometers, the signal is still really weak. And even a window has you know, creates enough interference uh, with radio waves um, at those frequent, at, at KAKU frequencies that yeah. this this will significantly degrade the signal. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. So yeah, definitely roof. Yeah, I just, I hate that whole idea of, oh yeah, it's the size of a pizza box. And then people think, oh cool, I have pizza inside in the house and I'm eating my pizza in the house. And it'll be like that. Oh, please don't. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. And, and I think people also get fooled by this idea that your mobile phone has got a GPS in it and, on it, and I know it knows where I am when I'm inside my house or my apartment or the office, if, you, if anyone's going into the office anymore, um, COVID-19, never mind. Um, point is that... Um, it's not really the GPS. It's actually getting your location from the nearest um, radio cell tower. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's not very accurate. So you need to actually put your phone right next to a window or be outside to get any decent, decent GPS lock. So that's just a fact. That's just the way it is. So anyway, all right, yes, um, satellite comms, keep that antenna outside. Everyone will be happy. All right, so as of June 23rd, 2020, there were 422 satellites in orbit. I think there's there might have been another load went up, I think you mentioned. Um in any case, it's initially only available in USA and Canada, and they're doing beat. You can sign up for beta testing if you want to. So, unfortunately, uh, Rodek, you and I are out of luck for that. But uh, shrug. Oh well, mm. eh, not the end of the world. I thought it might be interesting to talk about cost, mm. um, and that is like for for the end user. So, there've been a whole bunch of people that have had a stab at. It. I found one website. There's a link in the show notes, um, and it does a comparison of the two other. Uh, most predominant uh, satellite internet in North America and um, Canada providers. So one's uh, Viasat, and uh, that ranges from $30 a month for 12 megabits down to 150 a month for 100 megabits down. And another one's Hughes Network Systems or HughesNet. Uh, they range from $60 to $150 a month, and you get about 25 megabits down. Now, both of those two combined have got 2.5 million satellite internet customers. So there's no question there's a market. There's absolutely a market. 
And whatever Starlink has, it has to be better than that in terms of both pricing and speed. Otherwise, you won't attract the customers across. And it's not like Viasat or Hughes are going to be able to do anything on the scale that Starlink are. So Starlink pricing hasn't really been released yet, but Elon sort of let slip. He sort of hinted like, oh, maybe $80 a month kind of thing, maybe $100 to $300 modem terminal cost up front maybe. But all of that's typical Elon. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what that translates to in reality. And we're not going to know that until probably next year, I would think. Right. Okay. So why didn't anyone do this before? I mean, it's obvious, right? Jeez, it's so simple. Let's just launch 30,000 satellites. Why not? <laughs> um, obviously, the cost of this per satellite launch was so high because, you know, it costs so much to launch a satellite. You would launch as few as you could get away with. It was better to launch 50 expensive satellites than 500 cheap satellites. Uh, people also weren't interested in latency or bandwidth for that matter back then. So, you know, you could actually get away with putting satellites into higher orbits you know, with longer lifespans and all the economics made sense simply because it was so expensive to launch them. Um, but it's not just that. I think also a lot of the technology that we've got improvements in uh, digital signal processing is a big one. Um, you can do a lot of DSP on board the satellite now and the smaller chip fab sizes, you get much better power efficiency out of them as well, um, which is also big, which means you can put up a lot more um, comp- compute uh, up into uh, into this into orbit than you could previously. But the game changer really is the cost per pound to launch, and um, and SpaceX have just slashed that uh, with the uh, with the reusable rockets on the on the Falcon nines. There's no question that without that, this would not be possible. And SpaceX is right now this year, they are their own biggest customers with reused Falcon nine rockets, and in fact, in the past year. Falcon 9 has crossed many um, achievements in terms of their reusability, and it's all been Starlink launches. So last year in November, they for the first time, a Falcon 9 rocket was used four times, right? So, so, so the first mm. fourth time, that was the Starlink 1 launch. Mm. This March, um, they had the first fifth launch, right? So the first time a Falcon 9 was used five times and it was the same rocket launching starlink 5 and in a month there will be probably the first time that the falcon 9 rocket will have launched for the sixth time the same rocket so mm. they they haven't gone beyond three like one original launch and two reuses for commercial customers and they're just keep reusing the same booster over and over again as cheaply and quickly as possible, like their own hardware that other customers are too afraid to use. Uh, but for them, it's not that big of a risk because they're mass, they're mass manufacturing those, those, those uh, satellites. Exactly. Yeah, the economy of scale is, is it can't deny the impact that it's had. And I guess that's also the crossover. So it's not just the, the cost to launch has dropped so low, but it's also the fact that the technologies allow them to mass produce micro satellites, if you can call a 227 kilogram mm-hmm. satellite a micro satellite, but anyway, yeah. um, into a constellation that can actually work together. Um, it's still not going to be cheap, though. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. I was reading somewhere about one of the estimates was like $10 billion dollars. Like like cost to get all the satellites up there in the in the end something like that right so so you you asked why hasn't anyone done this before but the thing is this the commercial success of Starlink and their uh, slightly less ambitions 
and sometimes bankrupt competitors is not mm. yet obvious. Uh, notice how during the first Iridium, um, when the first Iridium constellation was launched, they promised heaven, they promised everything. They they thought they're going to have so many customers and they and they had many copycats, but they didn't. No one wanted it. And it was, Iridium was sold off, you know, through bankruptcy for like pennies on the dollar. Mm. And right now there's another, this this gold rush with Starlink and OneWeb now bankrupt and a couple of others. But it's not yet guaranteed that it's going to work. No. Even with Starlink's, um, you know, economies of, of scale and SpaceX being able to use their own um, rockets at cost and you know without the the markup that they're charging even with reused rockets to their customers it's going to be still so expensive with 1500 plus satellites that this might simply fail that there won't be enough customers who both want it and can afford to to pay for it absolutely right and i think that um, it is going to be borderline on the economics, and but I wouldn't bet against Elon Musk at this point. I think he's pulled off enough things, enough miracles, things that people said would never work out. Um, I think he's not a good man to bet against. No, and and certainly he has the patience and the deep pockets now for a long term view on this. Mm -hmm. So I kind of think that where the others have failed is that they didn't have you know multiple companies backing them and multiple other side businesses. Like I do believe that. If anyone can make it work, he can. And But maybe in the short term, it'll be confined to a smaller number of satellites focused in North America. And then gradually, it'll roll out around the world, which is ultimately the goal. But that just might take longer than he thinks. Right. But I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. I think that there's a, a fair chance of success. And I think that they've got the staying power that some of the others that have failed um, did not have. It's worth noting that the insane numbers on FCC applications have a lot to do with the rules of FCC and, and spectrum allocation and, and whatnot. And you want to shoot for, for the stars because if you only ask for, you know, 500 satellites to launch and it turns out you are successful, then you have a problem, yeah. right? So I don't, I don't expect um, that this will ever, if, even if successful, reach 30,000 um, satellites. Well, I don't want to say ever, but you know what i mean mm. but but yeah i know but but this is this is their wildest expectation of it maybe if everything goes right and all the stars are aligned this maybe hypothetically could be possible but this system will be usable with quote unquote just you know i think 700 something satellites which is still 10 times bigger than the next biggest constellation that exists um, yeah, but if they can launch, for, um, you know, sixty at a time, then that's not that's not the big problem. They're almost there, um, and then, you know, they they can always you know give up if it turns out to be a total flop. Um, you know, they'll lose a couple billion. They'll survive. They'll be fine. So it's it's funny you should say shooting for the stars there because I kind of um, I think we have to just uh, wrap up shortly. But I, before we do wrap up, is I want to talk about the pushbacks. Because there's a lot of people around the world that are concerned about this, and it's not all it's not all positive. Uh, like, so with stars, I mean, like astronomers. So 
one of the problems is that astronomers have pointed out that uh, with so many satellites in there, the number of uh, satellites in orbit will outnumber the number of visual, visible stars from ground from you know the, to the naked eye, and it's um, some of them have have shown some quite some some long exposures that have caught some of the Starlink satellites on camera, and it's like I saw that and I'm like, well, okay, that's very that's media clickbait, you know, um, because I mean I've taken photos in my backyard with my uh, with my my um, camera. And I've caught satellite trails, you know, and it's yeah. like, and and none of them are Starlink. I know that, uh, so it's it's not a new problem, but it's making an existing problem potentially worse. And uh, it's funny when Elon's reaction to that was, well, you can just do photo stacking to delete them out of your photos, and that's technically true. You can, and that's exactly what people do already. Um, but the density will increase; it'll just make it more problematic. Um, but we, I do wonder, though, if we're, whether, whether we're starting to cross that moment in time. Like, there were a few moments in time in the past, right, with, uh, with different technologies that have impacted astronomers. And I mean, the first one is when, when airplanes flew in large numbers at night around the world. So that was a thing. And right now, you look up into the sky at any one time. Well, maybe at the moment with lockdown and, and international travel, not so much, but rewind 12 months. And just, you know, you'd see blinking lights flying in the sky pretty much any time of the day or night in most, you know, most semi-metro areas around the world. Um, and there was an also, so there was a time before that. And then uh, light pollution from cities, you know, I mean, that's become so bad that like dark sky locations are kind of a thing now. You, you kind of have to go to a dark sky location just to escape the light pollution uh, from the city. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're going to add... 30,000 satellites with Starlink. It's like, okay, well, when satellites then are so numerous without image stacking, you're never going to get rid of them. It's like, I don't know, I I guess to take the extremist position, you could say, well, with light pollution, what's the answer for the astronomers? Is we say, well, because I don't want you to have to drive three hours to a dark sky location, if it's even that close, after nine o'clock, we're just going to turn all the lights off in the city. Um, Can we do that for our astronomers? It's like, it's the, what's the trade-off? You know, at some point, um, you have to say, well, the benefits outweigh the um, the impact to to astronomy, for example. But then again, I was also um, doing the notes for this um, yesterday, um, just finishing up on them, and I, caught, I I started thinking about the start of Wall-E, the movie, mm-hmm. um, Wall Wall-E. Anyway, in the first twenty five seconds, you're in in space, and you start to sort of like zoom in on uh, on the Earth and fly into the atmosphere, and you see the entire atmosphere of the Earth just covered by millions of satellites. It looks like millions; it's lots. And I'm like, hmm, it's a pretty powerful kind of image that kind of stuck in my mind so i don't know i could go one way or another but um then again i also thought about wally in the introduction and i'm like well if this is like 50 years ahead of when everyone abandoned the planet um most of those would have been dragged into the atmosphere and burnt up already so the big satellites would have anyway so i don't even know if that's actually a realistic you know view of the future anyway it probably isn't yeah i don't know i'm kind of a defense on the about this i i read about mm. the concerns and and tried to read it into it but Honestly, my personal take, and I don't want to come off as, you know, an, an, an Elon Musk, you know, fanboy or something, but mm. I think that if this works, and, and that's not obvious, that this might completely fail or semi-fail, but sure. if this really works, the benefits will be so immense that it'll be worth it. 
I I don't think we'll get yep. to thirty thousand. So I I don't think you know I don't think it's worth extrapolating um, to those numbers. Um, but it will be. I am absolutely sure that it will be a pain, an additional significant pain to astronomers. It'll be yet another thing in their way, and it will suck. But the benefits of having like total internet access everywhere and yeah it will be kind of expensive at first but but the technology will have been proven will will have been made cheaper and cheaper over time that's really powerful and why is spacex doing starlink in the first place well i think it is because elon musk is kind of crazy and just 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 is set on this one thing one goal to go to mars which takes a lot of money mm-hmm. and starlink will either lose a bunch of money or will be super 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 lucrative and it it's this stepping stone on on spacex's um vision mm-hmm. like you you need a bunch of capital to be able to move forward with the starship uh program and be able to make a big big freaking rocket <laughs> and then when you have that then hey suddenly suddenly putting up into orbit a massive telescope you know way bigger than whatever is possible now and without the extra complications of like folding it up like with james webb telescope which is ms but that's another story um like that will become uh possible so yeah i i just i'm sorry astronomers but i think it's yet another of those sad things that you'll have to deal with yeah uh, I do. I do. I mean, okay. As an engineer, I sort of fall on the benefits outweigh the um, the the you know drawbacks, um, and that's the astronomer side of things. But there's a couple other things to consider real quickly, though, um, before we wrap up. And that is that there have been a lot of people saying this is going to create a bunch of space junk. My response to that is that mm-hmm. um, they're designed to burn up on reentry, and if you don't boost them when they're that low, 550 kilometers is quite low. Yeah. Um, they're going to get sucked back into the atmosphere and they're going to burn up. So that problem solves itself in five to seven years, 10 years, they'd all be gone anyway if you did nothing about it. Mm-hmm. So the whole SpaceX, uh, whole Starlink idea is that this is a constant thing. Like every so many years, you'll, you'll launch a couple extra satellites to replace the old ones and it'll be, you know, the ability to iterate over those times, uh, over that period then is... Uh, is much better than other technologies. So I don't think that space junk is necessarily the problem, mm-hmm. but the other one is collisions. And it's kind of crazy to think with all that space up in space um, that collisions are po- that it would even be possible, but it's actually has happened. And I mentioned about it, well, a while ago now in this conversation, but on the tw- 10th of February in 2009, Iridium, uh, sat- the original Iridium satellite number 33 collided with um, Cosmos 2251. Uh, which was a defunct Russian satellite, and um, that was over Siberia. And both the satellites broke apart, and they've now got a debris field containing 2,500 pieces. Um, and so all those debris now, they're all tracked by the um, the US Space Surveillance Network. And eh, it's like, you know, it can happen. And um, when that does happen, those smaller pieces of debris will take a lot longer to eventually be drawn back down to earth again and uh, disintegrate in the atmosphere it'll take a lot longer it'll eventually happen but it's going to take a while so by having so many satellites up there um, the chances of a collision will increase and people can't say that it's never happened because it has Mm -hmm. Um, so it's i think that that's also an inevitability and it's something that 
we just need to be a lot more coordinated, I think, uh, globally with uh, when we're adjusting satellite orbits and when we're doing launches. And um, it just needs to be better administered, I think. And if you can do that and people are more responsible about it, then, you know, that should be something you can you can manage. And again, benefits outweigh the risks. And if you've got 30,000 satellites, okay, whether they get to 30,000 or not, yeah, if you've got a lot up there, losing one to a collision every so many years is probably not the end of the world. It's more the concern being raised by people is the space junk that might create in the process. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, that's actually a huge benefit of of putting those satellites in a in a really low uh, Earth orbit. Five hundred and fifty kilometers, that's pretty low. That like because like five hundred and fifty and eight hundred kilometers, that might not sound like a huge difference, but is it? It is a huge difference in terms of how long the satellite will last in orbit. So there's not much out there on five hundred and fifty kilometer orbit because of this because not much else yeah. wants to stay so short a time in orbit. Yeah. No one else is crazy enough to put them that low. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the the biggest the biggest um the biggest danger to Starlink is Starlink because of how many yep. there will be there and you know the it will be pretty much, you know, er- everything else on 550 or so orbit will be a rounding error compared to the number of Starlink satellites. And if you have an operational satellite, you are able to track it and position it with such accuracy um, that it's it's like it's fine. It's when it breaks, then it starts to become a problem and you just have to track it really carefully and maneuver around it. Uh, and actually a lot of uh, I think most ma- most satellite man- maneuvering is pretty much done manually. Like mm. someone observes it and you know sends commands to the satellite, but they will have they already have so, they already have so many that they are forced to to create a proper automated system that just reacts to these situations, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of the benefit that they have so many and they're pretty much the only users of this orbit. Uh, that they'll make it work, and if not, well, it will decay and degrade in a, you know, a reasonable number of years. And then Elon Musk can say, "Well, we tried, and it's all burnt up now." So, oh well. Yeah. Um, off to Mars. <laughs> um, <laughs> in any case, all right. Well, if you'd like to talk more about this, um, you can uh, reach me on uh, the Fediverse at Chigi at Engineer dot Space. Uh, on Twitter at John Chigi, or one word, or on the network at engineered underscore net. Uh, if you're enjoying Pragmatic and want to support the show, you can uh, via Patreon at patreon.com slash John Chigi, or one word. Uh, with a thank you to all of our patrons and a special thank you to our silver producers, Mitch Bilger, John Whitlow, Kevin Kosh, Oliver Steele, and Shane O'Neill, and an extra special thank you to our gold producer, known only as R. Patron rewards include a named thank you on the website, a named thank you at the end of episodes, access to raw, detailed show notes, as well as ad-free, higher-quality releases of every episode. So if you'd like to contribute something, anything at all, there's lots of great rewards. And beyond that, it's all really, really appreciated. Of course, there's lots of other ways to help, like favoriting the episode in your podcast player app or sharing the episode or the show with your friends or via social. Uh, Some podcast players let you share audio clips of episodes, so if you have a favorite segment, uh, feel free to share that too. All the things that uh, I just listed are ways that you can help other people to discover the show and can make a big difference. Now, um, if you'd like to get in touch with uh, Radek, uh, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you, mate? Uh, That's going to 
to be either through Twitter, I'm radxp, R-A-D-E-X-P, uh, or through email, and you'll find my email at radix.io. Uh, you're working um, on a pro- on a, a product that's um, uh, called uh, Nosby. Did you just want to um, take a couple of seconds just to quickly talk about that? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, for the, the past couple of years, we've been working on this completely new product. Uh, we call it Nosby Teams, and it's essentially a to-do app for teams. It, it's a product to help remote teams mostly communicate, collaborate, Get, get their stuff done. And after four years, we finally, just today, as we're recording this, kind of officially, officially launched it. We're on product hand, yada, yada. And I'm really proud of this product. So if if you're a team uh, and you want to get away from Slack and email and meetings, then Nosby Teams might be for you. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, thank you very much for that. And um, yeah, by all means, um, check it out. And uh, awesome. All right, lovely. Well, um, once more, uh, a special thank you to all of our patrons. Uh, a big thank you to everyone for listening, as always. Uh, and uh, thanks for coming back on the show, Radek. It's, uh, it's been great. Thanks so much for inviting me again. Anytime. 